0: Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM. I'm Frank Ling, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show.
1: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, sex, drugs, and glaciers. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Bulent Adelaide, who will discuss the life of Leonardo da Vinci.
0: Also, we'll find out why noble gases are so
1: stable. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here. On the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. You're Frank Ling. <laughs> I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. <laughs> you forgot your line. How many years have we been doing this show, Frank? <laughs> Just five. <laughs> Apparently five, not long enough. <laughs> not long enough, I guess. Well, memory's pretty bad, I think, as you get older.
0: <laughs> then again, you get to relive your good memories again, I guess. So are you old enough that you need some of your organs replaced? Uh, I have
1: organs that I've never used.
0: <laughs> In case you need any replacements, it turns out scientists have created the first successful artificial penis for a rabbit.
1: Well, good for them. <laughs> I salute that.
0: A, a, a team led by Dr. Adelaide at the Institute for Regenerative Medicine at Wake Forest have synthesized this organ that seems to be, uh, how should I say, it, holding up for the <laughs> rabbit. In fact, they've been able to achieve the normal pressures that a regular erect rabbit would have.
1: So it's complete with all the vasculature and everything that the rabbit would have? Apparently so. Did they do this tissue engineering scaffold? Is that how they were creating it?
0: There's an abstract that was presented at the recent American Urological Associations meeting. Urological. Okay,
1: not neurological. (laughs) Could be neurological. I think a lot of people think with that part of the body.
0: (laughs) This apparently brings hope for humans who may need that replacement one of these days. For some people, even erectile drugs do not make a difference. They've sustained too much damage to vasculature or disfigurement.
1: (laughs) So look forward to like rabid penises being grafted onto you, which for me actually would be a size improvement, I think. I don't know. (laughs) Kind of furry, huh? That might be an added bonus, you know, texture.
0: (laughs) Go to the abstracts for the uh, AUA was the main meeting 2006.
1: All right, well, more things that are rising and more things that are falling.
0: Wow, like the moon.
1: (laughs) Or like global air temperatures.
0: Oh, okay. We've already peaked and we're going down, right?
1: peaking and we're continuing to go up, but what's actually retreating are the glaciers. The ones in Tibet, I guess. Kind of everywhere, and in fact, a recent study was examining the ones in East Africa. A range of mountains called the Renzori Mountains, long revered as the Mountains of the Moon, and these straddle the border between the republics of Congo and Uganda. huh. So there's a team that was led by hydrologist Richard Taylor of the University of College London, and he's been conducting field mapping studies and assessing the latest satellite imagery of the glaciers, and he's found that some of these glaciers are receding by as much as 10 meters annually, and the total areas shrunk by almost one half between just the period between 1987 and 2003, between a 15-year period. Right. The implication is that these glaciers are likely to vanish within the next 20 years or so.
0: Do these include the ones in Kilimanjaro?
1: It's not clear, actually, if these include those as well. The interesting thing about these particular glaciers, the receding of the glaciers has often been thought of due to two factors. First, lack of precipitation and air temperatures. Right. But in this particular area, the precipitation hasn't changed much, but in fact, the air temperatures have risen, showing that it's sufficient enough that the air temperatures rise to cause the glacier to recede.
0: There was another report that was recently released by the Chinese Academy of Sciences. They're showing that the Tibetan Plateau, the glaciers are receding by 7% per year, or about 50% every decade. Wow. This is actually causing disruptions in the rivers, since it turns out most of the major rivers originate from the Tibetan Plateau. These include the Yellow River, mm-hmm. the Yangtze, Indus, Mekong, and so there's a bit concerned that this could affect about 2.5 billion people in the next few years probably.
1: Almost certainly. I think the outcomes of global warming will be very vast and very drastic. I'm not worried. (laughs) I am. (laughs) I'm terrified. (laughs) But I'm trying to do stuff about it.
0: Well, I'm doing
1: stuff about it without worrying it. Even better. So this is actually published in a recent edition of Geophysical Research Letters. So it looks like the military is finally going green. Green. So they're using biodiesel cars.
0: Not exactly. They haven't gone to the point of renewable warfare, but...
1: The other possibility is they're injecting their soldiers with green fluorescent protein.
0: Ah, not quite. But they're using uh, environmentally green primaries for their explosives in the future.
1: So uh, when it explodes, it'll fertilize the land or biodegrade. Is that what they're saying?
0: Well, the primers that are used these days for explosives typically contain a high amount of lead. And so some chemists have now developed several types of compounds which do not have any lead in them. And so when you blow things up, it'll be clean.
1: After you wiped out all the life by blowing stuff up, they can come back and live there again.
0: So this was some work that was led by scientists actually here at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, Los Alamos, as well as University of Northern Carolina.
1: Research for better living.
0: (laughs) And, even better yet, it's in our very favorite journal
1: somehow appropriately the proceedings
0: of the national academy of sciences
1: penas You know, whenever I hear the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, I always think about sex. Really? Or at least the differences between the sexes, male and females. And it turns out one of those is our release of dopamine. Dopamine? Dopamine is the so-called pleasure molecule of the brain. Uh, Anytime you are using something that's reward-based, dopamine's released, reinforces that behavior.
0: Oh, like chocolate.
1: Chocolate. Money. Gold, saving the environment. Not a lot of people get a kick out of that. But it turns out men might get more of a kick than females. Really? Because they release up to three times more dopamine dopamine than women do whenever they are using such things as methamphetamine.
0: So it means they're more susceptible to getting addicted to meth as well, right?
1: Exactly. So it turns out that that's one of the reasons why men might be more susceptible to becoming addicted to drugs and other types of behaviors that are based on the dopamine system. And it might also explain sex differences in other types of diseases like Parkinson's disease or Tourette's syndrome, for example, right. which also have some basis in the dopamine system. So this was interesting work. It was carried out by Gary Warden and colleagues at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and. It was published in a recent edition of Biological Psychiatry. And the experiment itself was really quite fascinating because they took a number of male and female volunteers and actually gave them a dose of <laughs> speed. <laughs> Scan. Experimental, right? Experimental. That's a research subject I wouldn't mind participating in. But anyway, and then yeah, just imaged their brain using positron emission tomography, looked at matter receptors in the brains, and saw that there were, in fact, substantial differences between both male and females. Oh, wow. Very fascinating, and maybe some of their subjects got addicted after. <laughs> but that's all in the name of science. Okay. Again, it was published in a recent edition of Biological Psychiatry.
0: And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grosch, you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Professor Bulin Alley talks about Leonardo da Vinci, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, it's been said that the goal of science and art are similar. It's a search for the truth. And this is exemplified by none other than the great Leonardo da Vinci, a renaissance man, artist, and great scientist. Well, joining us to talk a little bit about his life and uh, the life of a thinker is our special guest, Professor Bulin-Adelay professor of physics at University of Virginia and also a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton
2: where Einstein spent the last 25 years of his life Professor
0: Alley, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: It's a pleasure to be on the air with you. So I understand
0: you've written a very fascinating book, Math and the Mona Lisa, The Art and Science of Leonardo da Vinci.
2: Could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. First of all, I am an artist, and I'm a scientist, a theoretical physicist. Early in my life, I realized I had passions for mathematics and for art, and quite by accident, I found myself in physics. I had applied in to as an undergraduate to Georgetown University to become a physician, but my doctor-like handwriting was misread and I was accepted into physics. (laughs) And I found that I really liked physics. But when I was in England as a youngster, my involvement in art was ignominious at best. I made holes in the pupils of all the paintings, these 18th century paintings, that didn't seem to have soul in their eyes. One thing I remembered from reading about Leonardo as a youngster was that the eyes were the windows to the soul. Well, these paintings didn't have soul until I put holes in the eyes. And I, later, I, when I started doing art, I did find that in Leonardo, I had a kindred spirit. He was, but he was quite simply the best in both art and science. Uh, We can speak about genius, and there are plenty of them at Berkeley. I I guess I've known about 20 Nobel Prize winners in physics, and they're all gifted, probably all geniuses, but ordinary geniuses. Once in a while, you come across, our civilization comes across a, a transformative genius, and Einstein might have been the last one completely redefining a field. Beethoven, Shakespeare, these are people you don't ask who is the greatest in the field. You have to start at number two, at number three. So so it is with uh, art. You can talk about the third greatest artist. It may be Raphael or Rembrandt, but about number one and number two, you take Leonardo and Michelangelo in either order. That's supreme. That's far above the rest of the field. So as I wrote my book, I really realized that I was paralleling what he had been doing, seeing art through a scientist's eyes, seeing science through an artist's eyes and you characterized art and science both as a search for the truth. I agree with that, but besides that, I would say in both fields you're describing nature. In science, you'd want to describe it objectively based on your understanding of the physical laws and the chemical laws, laws of chemistry, but in art, you can be subjective, express yourself. The church often has been the biggest uh, patron of the arts, certainly not the sciences. But uh, anyway, this is how... I started writing the book in 2000, and by 2004 it was published by the Smithsonian in hardback, and just now it came out in paperback after seven printings in hardback. But I have to thank uh, the mega-success of The Da Vinci Code, which is a novel, <laughs> mine <laughs> Mine is not a novel, as you know. It, it, it's a serious book, although it's written for the intelligent layman and not for the specialist.
0: What did you think about the Da Vinci Code? Copeland? I liked
2: it, but I, my friends gave me five copies of the book <laughs> since they knew I was reading the. I was writing my own book. Each time I came across a mistake, I gave a copy away, and finally, when I was down to the last copy, I forced myself to read it. Flying to Europe once. And I like the book, but it's a novel. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's a novel. There are things I agree with it. I don't think Mary Magdalene is that character in the painting just to the left of Christ. That would be St. John. But effeminate models were quite often seen in these studios. And later, when, when Leonardo painted a portrait of St. John, you would be amazed at how effeminate this St. John is. On the lighter side, let me just say that uh, when he painted The Last Supper, he was very much like a Hollywood casting director. He knew the faces, the visages he wanted to portray. He was the consummate draftsman who was always sketching in the marketplace anyway. So he was able to find uh, 11 of the apostles quite easily. His biggest problem was finding Judas, the face of evil, and Christ himself, the face of Piety. Well, he found Christ, but he still had a hard time finding Judas. In all of earlier paintings of Judas, they, the artist would put Judas from the back. He would depict him from the back. But here, Leonardo puts him into a more democratic lineup. There are four trios, four groups of three. But Judas is third over to the left of Christ. And his face is in the shadows, so you don't see his face very well. He has it. He's turning... To his left. But the way he found this Judas is most interesting. Now, Leonardo liked myth. He also liked to nurture myth, so we don't know whether this is true or apocryphal. But a friend came to him and he said, Leonardo, I found your Judas. He's in the prison. So Leonardo went to meet the man, and sure enough, he agreed. This was his perfect Judas. The man agreed to pose, and as Leonardo painted him, The man said, you don't recognize me, do you? Suddenly, Leonardo looked up and recognized him and started shaking. This was his Christ three years earlier. Same model for Christ and Judas. I I suspect Dan Brown would have put that into his book if he had known about it. But we don't know whether it's true. It could be apocryphal. That is a very interesting revelation. It is. It's an astonishing thing. When I came across it, I was floored. But, but, you know, I spoke about him and, Leon- and Michelangelo as being the supreme artists. When you look at the output, Michelangelo lived to be 89. He was prolific. He walked, he worked fast, he produced magical works, sculpture. He also did a few ceilings, <laughs> one very large ceiling he mm-hmm. painted. But you look at Van Gogh. Van Gogh did 800 paintings in eight years. You look at Rembrandt. 600 oils, 57 of himself alone. You look at Leonardo, a dozen. The greatest artist produced a dozen paintings, except the number one and the number two most famous works in the history of the planet are by him. The Mona Lisa and The Last Supper are the most famous paintings. And what makes them so unique is really that they're psychological studies. But everyone, each person who sees the enigma of of Mona Lisa's smile takes away something different as you know.
0: Right. So speaking of the Mona Lisa, understand there's some sort of um, geometric analysis of, of her face and her, um, her posture. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. First of all, the, Leonardo painted three women 15 years apart, approximately 15 years apart. Ginevra de Benci is in Washington. That's a portrait, a small portrait at the National Gallery and the only one outside Europe. The second one was Cecilia Gallerani, or the lady with an ermine, and she's in Poland, in Krakow. And the third, of course, is the Mona Lisa. Now, in each of these, you find that the perpendicular bisector of the painting, the line that goes right through the middle of the painting, goes through one of the eyes, only one eye, not the nose, not the eye, just the eye. The head, if you define the head as the height of a square and you extend it downwards by 62%. This defines a golden rectangle. In each of the a golden rectangle has is one that has proportions 1 by 1.618. It's roughly 62% longer than it is wide, but it's a shape that appeals to us. It's the shape of the Parthenon, for example. And it's the shape of a credit card. <laughs> <It> appeals, <laughs> and an iPod. <laughs> it appeals more to my wife than it does to me, but it does appeal to us. A three-by-five index card. You know, the Fibonacci series, which, of course, you must know as a chemist, uh, one, one, two, three five, eight. You add the last two numbers to get the next term. This gives us the, the golden ratio. Here, uh, 13, 21, 34, right. 55, like that. You divide pairs of them. Leonardo knew this well. He illustrated a book for his friend, the mathematician Luca Pacioli, and in it he showed that the amazing insight of the polyhedra, these multifaceted solid objects, for example. And he doodles with all these and they come together in his art to organize his characters in the virgin of the rocks one of the most beautiful paintings in the world it's in the louvre there's the quartet of 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 um virgin mary the infant christ there's john the baptist infant mm-hmm. and there's an angel they're organized in a pyramid the pyramid just by chance is exactly the same pyramid proportionately as the ones in Egypt the ratios of sides to base is 1.618 in other artists cases if you see these numbers it's usually an accident with leonardo no, nothing is an accident not the psychology he, he he imbues in his characters not the shapes not the colors he's an artist doing science he's a scientist doing art his uh, you know these what we know about his science is, of course, from the codices, the notebooks. There are thousands of, I think about 4,000 pages in existence now of the 14 to 18,000 that is estimated to have been created in his lifetime. That's where you see his real scientific genius, the finest anatomist in history. He would do his own postmortems on his subjects mm-hmm. that he would draw. So here is this uh, surpassing draftsman doing the dissections himself. So you, you don't expect anything less.
0: In today's age, where you know we have abundance to so much knowledge and so much education, do you think we can produce another Leonardo da Vinci?
2: Each field has become so much more complex. It's said that physics, for example, the last physicist that might have known all of physics was Niels Bohr, early in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I suspect it was probably Richard Feynman who had, who was a passionate and brilliant physicist. Right. He might, may have been the last. Whether someone can rise to the level where they can produce great art and great science or math. I have a feeling it. I don't think it will happen again. In those days, the dichotomy didn't exist. It was part and parcel of the same thing. Mm-hmm. They were searching for beauty. They were searching for truth. And they were describing nature. So, uh, Also, figurative artists... Generally, you emote on the right side, the spatial right side, whereas you do mathematics on the left side of the brain, preponderantly. So when you see mathematicians and physicists who are fine artists, they're musicians, they're not painters, by and large. Einstein was a very fine violinist. Heisenberg was a very fine pianist, for example. But I don't know any great mathematician or physicist nowadays who's also a very good painter. I don't know any.
0: I see. So I was wondering if you have any comments about today's educational environment. Does it foster the sort of intellectual curiosity that these people embodied?
2: You know, in my last chapter of Math and the Mona Lisa, I talked about what Leonardo did and what we can do to make us a little bit more creative. I suspect if we carried a sketchbook around with us and just did sketches of some things that we saw, rather then take photographs of. If we described them, if we wrote about them, I suspect we would be a little bit more creative. If we looked into entirely different arenas, scientists looking at art, looking at music, uh, I, I think this these are some of the elements. In other words, cross-semination mm-hmm. is what I think w- would help creativity. Uh, maybe when cameras were invented in the 19th century, this aspect of just sketching disappeared. I'm told, I think Betty Edwards wrote about this in her very good book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, that until we're about 9 or 10, we all improve our our drafting ability. Then some metamorphosis takes place at that age. 19 of 20 people begin to regress. Five out of 20, that's one out of 20, rather, that's 5%, -hmm. keep getting better. They look at what they're doing. And in a sense, in the Renaissance, it was the artist who started doing this. And the artist taught the scientists how to do science, you know, to actually looking at things and depicting them the way they see them, saw them, rather than in an idealized sort of way. Of course, one point perspective came about a generation before Leonardo. People like Masaccio in 1425 were doing this. But Leonardo is clearly doing two-point perspective and more in his artwork. It's looking at nature, depicting it as it is rather than as it should.
0: So we had a conversation with uh, Professor Martin Pearl a few months ago Uh at Stanford University, and um, he, um, uh, I guess one of his um, issues is that the education seems to emphasize a lot of knowledge without the chance to really digest it. Uh, Do you think this is a problem that's actually um, hindering uh, creativity?
2: I think Professor Pearl is correct. I think so. I think too much information, too much teaching to the test rather than teaching how to think. Mm-hmm. How to be more objective. You have to understand, though, that also that Leonardo is unique in one sense. He was a love child. He he was the illegitimate child of a very young girl and well, twenty fifteen year old girl and a twenty four year old notary named Sir Piero Antonio. He had no education. He didn't have a first grade teacher who told him as a left-hander he had to learn how to write with his right hand. So he wrote with his left hand backward. He wrote from right to left. Because this way, the pen doesn't stick in the, wa- in the paper. See, if you're using a quill and you're pushing the pen instead of pulling it, it'll stick. But being the ultimate pragmatist, he had more facility. He could write much faster from right to left, so he wrote backwards. He wasn't being secretive, as some art historians claimed. All you need is a mirror to see and make out his words. You know that he's left-handed by the shading. When you shade... If you have positive slope, that means if it rises to the upper right, you're right-handed. If the shading has negative slope, you're left-handed. And Leonardo is left-handed, the most famous left-hander in history. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I guess we are running a bit out of time here. Um, Professor, I just want to thank you for an enlightening discussion. Um, are there any last words you'd like to add about you, your book or your current research? Uh,
2: sure. If you get a chance, look at my website, www.bulantatelay.com. Dot com. I never thought I'd become a dot com but <laughs> <laughs> my publisher recommended it and so I have. You can see my art and my science there. And how to order the book.
0: <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
0: And we were just talking to Professor Bulan Atley, author of Math and the Mona Lisa. This is Berkeley are listening to here on ninety point seven FM. In a few moments, the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Groks. Well, Professor Adelaide has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grokotron 5000, the computer forming known as Deep Blue. Today's topic Renaissance Man or Not? And here are five subjects. Subject number one Renaissance Man or Not? Star Wars creator George Lucas.
2: Not. Not. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a very stringent. Uh criteria for this. I'm coming from Leonardo. All
0: right. Subject number two, um, artist of the 20th
2: century, uh, Picasso. He's awfully talented. With modern art, I have some issues. If a person can do representational art and then go to modern art, then I think there's some talent perhaps that I haven't seen. But immediately sometimes people start expressing themselves and I, I, this is not really art to me. There's some. Picasso is very, very good. I mean, he's, he's obviously one of the great geniuses of 20th century art. I don't like his work as much as figurative art or impressionist art. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay, great. Subject number three Renaissance man or not? Self professed man of taste. Um, Apple computer founder Steve Jobs.
2: Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant man. He's brilliant. He's a dropout, and that apparently is something that one has to do to succeed in life. You have to go to a great institution and drop out that means you're above it all so he did that as did this man Land who invented Polaroid cameras in the beginning. Go to a great institution and drop out. I think he's one of the most important people in history because he gave us personal computing.
0: Subject number four, um, scientist of a more recent time, Mathematica creator Steve Wolfram.
2: Again, I think he's brilliant. He won the MacArthur prize. He went to Eton and graduated so young as I did, I went to Eton. Then he went to Oxford, and I think he graduated at 18 or so. Mm-hmm. And then he went to Caltech and studied. I believe with Feynman, brilliant. Then he developed Mathematica that all scientists use. So he gave us a, he did a big favor for us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Finally, subject number five, our perennial favorite, Renaissance man or not, president of the United States, George W. Bush.
2: Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> that was a you hard know. one. <laughs> you know, I was at I was at a conference a long time ago in San Francisco, and we were debating whether there was extraterrestrial intelligence. And I asked the audience. It was a high-powered conference with 14 Nobel Prize winners among the audience. And I asked how many of them believed there was intelligent life in the universe. And I think most of them raised their hands. And my ask my response was, is there intelligent life on Earth? I live just 50 miles from Washington and there's very little evidence around here. So (laughs) I think well-meaning but not intelligent.
0: Well, Professor Adelaide, thank you so much
2: for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Frank.
1: Yeah, no, here's Vinny again with the answer to last week's question of the week. You know, I've been slapping at the xenon. I've been slapping at the argon for over a week now. They won't bond. They just won't budge an inch. And I figured out why. And it's because they have a filled valence shell. I respect that now. So I let them go.
0: And Yoda with this week's question of the week. Strong the force is with TNT. Hmm. But dangerous it is to control. Hmm. If you know or think you know how the force of TNT works, email us at at grok.hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but down the dark side you will not go. Hmm. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact
0: us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox,
1: I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.